0: When you're making a record, if I were to visualize the project, it would be like a sphere, and it has to be like a sphere of context. The art is important because it has to represent or give weight to the music, which also the lyrics need to, and then the music needs to inform the art, and they all need to inform one another. I think that like it is kind of this whole package
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways Podcast. This season, we're talking to musicians and the visual artists they collaborate with to create iconic album covers, videos, posters, and merchandise that make the experience of music so much more than sound. On the show, you're going to learn more about the bands you love, get turned on to new music, and uncover stories behind the art of music. You might also learn a thing or two you can bring to your own creative practice. I'm your host, Rob Goodman. I'm a diehard music lover, an illustrator for bands, and a creative producer. I'm obsessed with the way visual art music can combine to make something memorable and moving for our eyes and our ears. On today's episode, I'm talking to George Clark, lead singer from the incredible band Deaf Heaven, alongside his creative collaborator, close friend, graphic designer and musician, Nick Steinhardt, from the band Touche Amore. This conversation is what this show is all about. We go deep into the creative process behind the music and art of Deaf Heaven's album covers and overall visual aesthetic. Throughout the interview, you're gonna hear more about the care and consideration that goes into every decision the band makes about the visual art that surrounds their music. You'll learn more about George's backstory, how Nick and George originally connected, and the stories of inspiration and creative production that bring Deaf Heaven's music to life through art. Every album the band has released has evolved in sound. The post-metal group started in San Francisco back in 2010, and the aesthetic for their artwork has grown with every consecutive release. Nick Steinhardt is an incredible designer, having done packaging for big-name acts like Tom Petty, Pink, Britney Spears, and of course his own band, Touché Amoré. We get into what it's like for Nick collaborating with George and the band on Def Heaven's album designs, how being a touring musician plays into his own work and his work ethic, and his approach to designing for Touche Amore as well. I'm such a fan of both of these bands and really admire George and Nick creatively. They are both constantly growing and searching and leaning into that trust they have together as friends and collaborators to outdo themselves in one way or other, musically and visually. With each release. In this episode, you'll hear clips from Deaf Heaven, like the opening track for this episode, Baby Blue, from the album New Bermuda. And you'll also hear Gifts for the Earth when we chat about the New Bermuda record later in this episode. You'll also hear Sunbather from the album of the same name to close out this episode. And coming up next, you'll hear Canary Yellow from their album Ordinary Corrupt Human Love, released in 2018. And at the end of the episode, you'll also hear some of Nick's band, Touche Amore. With the track Flowers and You. Let's jump into my interview with George and Nick and hear how these two first connected.
2: So it was 2011? Yeah. Okay, so I think the timing was that you had just signed to Deathwish, but maybe it wasn't publicized or it had just been. And. Def Heaven came down to the LA area, played a show with my band. And at the time, I think there were only like initials for the, the band members. It was very mysterious. And we were trying to think like, these guys have to be adjacent to some Bay Area scene that we know. Like, we have to know people in common, but couldn't figure it out. So then when they came down and played the show, we, we chatted a bit. Where was the show? It was a venue called the Blacktop, which was basically like an industrial storage locker. East of LA, yeah, in Bell
0: Gardens, yeah, yeah. Well, before we go into the night, prior to that, there had been a, a couple of these like funny interactions between us because Nick is right in that when we first began, we didn't put a lot of public information out on purpose, just to sort of let the music spread and, and see what people thought about it, and kind of safeguard ourselves in the in the process. But one of the things that we did do very early on was our basis at the time went and saw them at Gilman, I'm pretty sure, and left of our tapes with them? Oh
2: yeah, it was in a merch box. It was like mis- It mysteriously appeared in our merch box. <laughs> and he left
1: it. It was a plant.
0: Yeah, we were. we were just like you know. I was like, if you're gonna go to the show, or, you know, I'm, I'm sure I didn't prompt it, but the idea was like, if you yeah, if you're gonna go to the show, bring a tape, and if you see one of those guys, you know, hand it to him. And I guess it, it worked out like this. So it, so leading up to our meeting, yeah, there was all these kind of uh these little things, and then was that Silver Lake Lounge? Was that that night? Yes. Yeah, we had a long night. We don't need to go too into it, but we had a very long night, a very fun night at Silver Lake Lounge. Leading into the Silver
2: Lake Lounge is the funny part, is that basically through a series of events, they ended up staying at my apartment that night.
1: Okay.
0: Oh my God. Oh my God. Yay.
1: Yeah,
2: I was like this maybe the second person in Los Angeles you guys need to hit up. So I was thinking, okay, I've got these like cool new guys in town. Their drummer is not of age. I think there's this one bar that's kind of interesting that I could take them to where they won't card, and then yeah, it was the the Silver Lake Lounge, which hosted a very festive night of the week with uh, lip syncing and drag, and like none of it was expected. I was like, oh, I'm gonna take them to this dive bar, and then it's turned into like hilarity ensues.
1: Those are the best nights when it's just like totally unplanned and never stops.
0: Yeah, I remember we weren't very familiar with LA at the time and I remember thinking that because it wasn't it wasn't like the drag shows I'd been to in San Francisco that were very kind of like planned out and accordingly over the top you know it was super casual I remember it was like, very
2: like working class
0: yeah we didn't know until we got in and I remember just thinking like oh this is amazing that you can just come into any bar and, and like and, and this is happening and it's not like a, a deal necessarily it's just part of the landscape. And I, th- I think that that definitely started our love affair with LA. And we ended up staying with Nick quite a few times thereafter for years and years during our, uh, our scrappy days, especially. Yeah, that
2: was the first time I think, you know, uh, once we got back from the bar, I remember sitting down and you guys showing me a bunch of music I wasn't familiar with, like old shoegaze stuff. And we were like pulling out records and art books because they were thinking about how to figure out their upcoming record on Death Wish, which was Roads to Judah. And, you know, I'd pull things off the shelf of like, okay, this is what a gatefold is. And here's like some interesting packaging and here's an art book. And we just kind of started like looking at stuff, which sort of set up again, that pattern of kind of what we do when, when George comes over, kind of set the stage for it.
0: Yeah, exactly. I remember along with this bar experience, meeting Nick in general and and learning about Nick's experience and the stuff that he was pulling it wasn't like underground LPs, you know. These were like major artists that he had done these major works on, and that he had been uh, the only person I knew that that had been educated for design at all. I knew loosely people that went to like art school and stuff, but not in this way. So the whole thing felt very like electric in, in a sense. We were so greatly unfamiliar with all this world that I remember just being like, "Wow, this guy knows like everything." And and that's I, I still feel that way, but. I remember just being I'm really blown away, like, Britney Spears, dude, like, where are we right now? Like, what is- <laughs>
1: And Nick, were you working at Smog Design at the time? I was. I, I started interning there in 2007 while
2: I was still in school and then was full-time there from 2009 on. So yeah, I would have been like two to four years in, depending on how you look at it.
1: So what was in your portfolio at that time where George was like flipping through and being like, Wow. Yeah, this guy's legit tied in with some big artists and labels and all that good stuff.
2: It's hard for me to remember. Like, I like to say time is no longer linear to me because I can't remember what's two to four to ten years ago. But that was ten-ish years ago. I'm pretty sure the Britney Spears project is Femme Fatale, which would have been 2010. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: There might have been a Selena
0: Gomez record in there. There's a lot of Selena Gomez. I remember (laughs) we had brunch and I talked Nick's ear off about Selena Gomez because... We were talking because I didn't, I didn't know that photo shoots cost like the money that they do. Right. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Like, and then what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight different sets and eight different looks. And, you know, that one
2: was pretty ambitious. I can't remember what year that would have been, though. I did like four of her records. So it's sort of like all kind of blurs. Pink, definitely. I started in like 2008, started working on her stuff.
0: And maybe John Mayer?
2: Yeah, I've I'd, I'd done a little bit of John Mayer stuff.
1: So you had the music connection because you were like playing with each other, you appreciated each other's music at that at that time.
0: Yeah. yeah. We were fans before Deathwish had contacted us. We were fans and we were, I guess, very loosely connected with the Bay Area quote like Screamo scene, bands like Rare Loma Prieta. That was like our touche connection, at least just listening wise. But prior to that, had no death wish affiliation or anything like that. The the signing to the label is really what introduced us that like our band into that world, into kind of everyone's world. We were pretty young when we got picked up, so yeah, it kind of started there, like at the label start, essentially.
1: That's great. I'm in San Francisco, actually in the Inner Sunset. So Jude is a couple blocks away, and I didn't know y'all back in like. 2011, 2012, but I saw you at Treasure Island Music Festival a few years later. The rainy one. Yeah, the rainy one. Yeah, well, both days were rainy, right? But during your set, it wasn't raining quite yet. Our set was spared,
0: and then Caribou, I think, DJed for like five hours or something.
1: (laughs) I was so determined to continue going to that festival that I went to REI that night, and I got so much gear because I was sopping wet from that first day, and I was just like... not not happening again. And I just showed up like a fisherman, like ready for battle on day two. But that was a great set. I remember seeing y'all, George. And I think like a lot of people, I just, I didn't know what to make of Deaf Heaven. Like I just, I like, I think my senses were overwhelmed by like the music, by the visuals, by what was happening. And it's taken me some years to like really get to know your music Get to know the poetry I find in your lyrics and understand kind of like the context of the music that really influenced you where I'm really, you know, I love the music and it's definitely on like the edges of the kind of harder music I listen to. But all this is to say, as you all are creating music and defying genre or whatever that means, how much of that was important to you? Like back when you started, back when you were coming up to be accepted into a scene, be part of a scene, or how much of, of it was like, this is just who we are, whatever label you want to put on it, that's fine. We're not really here for that.
0: Thanks, firstly. Uh, I, I appreciate that a lot. No, um, I mean, the only thing we wanted to do was like play like Submission Art Gallery, you know, and get paid and drink tickets and, and hang out. We, I mean, I, I, I don't joke when we literally no ambition. But also, we didn't know that we weren't fitting into a scene until people told us that we didn't fit in, you know? <laughs> We were like, I still don't think of what we do as being like that crazy. But especially at the time, we were like, oh, like, this is just stuff we like. I think it's just that the boxes that are put around you are such rigid ones.
2: The genres you're supposedly defying are ones that are like particularly stubborn.
0: Yeah, that is true. That is true. You know, it's funny because we tend to both fit in everywhere and not fit in anywhere. And it's been it's been nice. I I kind of appreciate being malleable. A lot of people who are into heavy music might think that Death Heaven and Touche are very different from one another. But I think that there's so much sonic similarity and we are both so fluid that that's a relationship we can have. Whereas, like, they can also have their relationship to more, like, hardcore-centered like bands. And we can have our relationships to metal or or shoegaze-centered bands. But we also come together. These things are all kind of, like, interesting to me. I think that over time, we've, in a sense, created our own scene out of just these sort of outliers. You know, these, like, fringe people or people that don't necessarily care or adhere to anything too sternly. So I'm glad the way it's worked out. But, no, it, it definitely wasn't, like, anything of a... Like I said, we didn't know we were weird until people got mad, until the Pink Record came out. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which people
2: also think we're intentionally trying to piss people off.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's so not true.
1: It's awesome to hear. I mean, I think there's something like lovely about belonging and the idea of kind of being part of a tribe, but at the same time, to have that artistic freedom to just step out, plant a flag, and attracting in like-minded individuals whether they be listeners or other bands to kind of set up your own island I think is like a pretty freeing approach to art and music which is which is awesome let's talk about the records you just mentioned Sunbather talk to me about the evolution record to record of the collaboration both from your your thinking George and and your side Nick how do you think about how visual art interacts with the music is it a layer on top of it does it help kind of finish out the overall project in your mind how do you connect those two as you're working on a record
0: you know when, when you're making a record i feel like if, if i were to visualize the project it would be like a sphere and it has to be like a sphere of context and at all points on the sphere all context lines are like are reaching one another you know what i'm saying it's like yes the art is important because it has to represent or give weight to the music which also the lyrics need to and then the music needs to inform the art and they all need to inform one another and i think that like it is kind of this whole package and i think that if you're focused on an album all these boxes should be checked you know i mean i I'm, and i don't know if, if everyone is like this so i should say just like in my personal experience when when making a record are these things important and I find that in Nick as well. We're very detail-oriented when it comes to the visual aspects of these things, and every dot around the sphere is kind of connecting with another in terms of the context of the, the project as a whole.
1: George, how early in the process, when you're making music, do you think about like visual representations of it? Is it when it's done, is it during? It's always stirring. But
0: I'll say this, it used to, as time has gone, it starts earlier and earlier. And for Rose to Judah, because I honestly just didn't know enough, we put some thought into the details. But from Sunbather on, the artwork really became an integral part of the project. And in that happening, I've considered the art much early on when I, when I think about future stuff. The thing I'm working on in particular currently for the band has had visual components from the very beginning, and may have even been you know some of the first pieces to what will eventually be the puzzle. Is that the live
1: record? No, no, that's new LP. That's awesome. That's exciting.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a work in progress. I, I, there's nothing to really say about it, so I don't feel uncomfortable mentioning it. But all this to say that yeah, it serves an important purpose.
1: And Nick on on the design side how do you digest the music and the input from the artist and then start concepting
2: you know it really depends on how close i am to the project access is can be an issue with some clients or even just when at what stage you're brought in like you mentioned to george like how early is it a thought in my own band i have the privilege of being a creator of the music as well and you know i'm in real time seeing the songs unfold like with our singer's lyrics so it's like i want to dive in as early as possible and get a much grander vision because it's my own project and i treat that with the most importance and with george as well like i'm so invested in their career and the music and our friendship that like he said we kind of start earlier every project we go and that could be as you know as simple as coming over and just diving into art books and like looking at things that appear interesting or what haven't we done before versus having a concept it's like you know exploring you know okay that one was graphic design that one was fine art have we done photography have we done this so i guess when you're when you're asking about is it is the visual a layer on top it sort of just becomes like baked into the process and i don't know if at some future point that the visual will be completely disassociated with with it musically but you know i think if you're a fan of music it's very hard to disassociate a record cover from the music you're listening to even if it's just the color that your brain associates so you know i put a huge amount of weight on that no matter who the client is and yeah if they'll br- if they'll bring me in early and i'm part of the family and part of the process then you know i'm just that much more invested in it
1: are there records for you too growing up where you like the the artwork is so like burned into your experience with the music that it's kind of inspired you now as creators yourselves to like bring that kind of thinking into into your work?
2: I can't point out any like one in specific that made me go like I want to make album covers or like I it's almost like everything I listened to back then I you know I bought it and I consumed it and I you know held it in my hands and analyzed every piece of it and yeah there was some stuff I was enamored with and sort of went down that path of what is it about this I like? How do I do that? Who are these people? And that's, I think it's just part of like the discovery of a, a young adult getting into finding his bearings and art and music and what have you.
1: Yeah. And George, I know that there are records you picked up based on the cover, like growing up where you were just like drawn to them and were like, I'm going to, I got to see what this is about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I got into like my, my metal years as a young teen and, a young adult, I would go to Sam Goody, and I would see who had the most gruesome cover, and I'd buy it. I bought Sepultura's Arise uh, that way. I also bought Hatebreed's Satisfactions, The Dead of Desire that way, because I just... It was just a blue record with like the Hatebreed logo huge on it, and I was like, any band that calls himself that, this just has to be ridiculous. (laughs) And then it was, you know? But I think, same with Nick, I was... Always paying attention to album art because I was always holding albums or CDs. I mean, for, for me, it was CDs, and this is at a time when CD booklets came very deluxe. When I can think about old booklets that I had, I think about like how expensive they probably were to print. Slipknot's uh, like Iowa was like extremely deluxe with like specialty like plastic paper and like weird coating on certain things, and it's funny to think about a CD being handled that way now. But point being is that I remember that. Or seeing, you know, the cover of Nevermind, you know, and and just being, like, just kind of fixated on that. Or the cover of Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, you know, and just being, like, just looking at, like, intricate artwork for the first time. Or Michael Jackson's Dangerous, which had the same thing. I think that, yeah, they were definitely very important. But you would have to ask me now for me to really consider that. Because at the time, and well up until, probably until I met Nick, I had never really thought myself to have a visual eye whatsoever. I'm terrible at visual art. I always drifted more towards writing and music because I can't draw to save my life. I've seen your drawings. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. They're not going on a cover anytime soon?
0: No. D- a different type of cover, for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So that, that's kind of my, my early relationship to it. I would say that it's, it's more of a reflective one than a, than a conscious, and you know, at the time,
1: yeah. Thinking back on the records that changed my life growing up, there's something about an amazing package that it like signifies this. You're holding something really special. This is like a really special thing you're about to hear and experience. I remember flipping through lyric books, holding packages in my hand. And there, there is something, even though we live in a digital world now about the artifact, the physical artifact that you can hold, that you can put up. And I love that you all focus so much on that physical presentation in vinyl, in CD, in all different formats. I assume it's because that presentation, that full presentation, it matters.
2: One thing on that note is getting a record or a CD or whatever it is, there's an experience to it. There's like an experience of seeing it at first and then opening it and unfolding it and also doing that while you're listening to the music. So I think ones that made more of an impact on me were there's this singular image that's a focal point that draws you in, but that's not all there is. There's like a whole other set of elements or almost a, a story unfolding or like, wow, someone someone had the know-how and the thought to put much more into this than just like, okay, here's a square that says it all. Because I think that says something and that's arguably the most important part, but there's different levels of commitment as a fan sometimes you want just the easy to digest thing and the simple thing, or that's not what you care about and that's fine. But then there's other fans that want as much as they possibly can get. And I think delivering on all of those levels is
0: important. It's funny too, because it isn't something I felt like we, we took for granted, but the experience was so much more focused on like full immersion because of those things. Like, like there's weird details I remember of CD booklets. And I'll tell you like a case in point, Okay, computer. My mom had bought that CD. We always had Radiohead in the house, and the lyrics were printed really small and and kind of jaggedly. They were they were sort they're sort of all over the page. They weren't up until that point when I read lyrics. You know, they're always like in these kind of like uniform blocks. And something as simple as that. Like I remember that now. I haven't looked at that CD booklet in. Decades, probably. But I poured over those lyrics all of the time, and I would sit, and I would just sit with that book and read credits and thank yous and, and things like that. It's hugely important. It's hugely important. And find out about bands and things yep. through thank yous. And uh, and I don't think that's lost. I don't think that's lost so long as people can remember that full immersion and you know pass it on to new listeners who are often you know, of course that's not what they're being given because that type of experience isn't on a platform. Yeah. It's kind of, I, th- I think it's, it's a bit harder even to be ambitious with packaging, but, but we, we try in the face of uh, of shrinking budgets and, and what have you. We had a
2: conversation recently about the, what George was saying about the credits and the thank yous is like, I take for granted that we live in a digital age where anyone at any point can look up that our two bands have toured together. But, imagine some sort of Planet of the Apes future that a record is undiscovered and they're looking at this, you know, vinyl sheet saying, huh, who are all these bands that they thanked? You know, it's like maybe, you know, just for the sake of our childhoods, we should start including that kind of stuff more often.
0: It's nice, yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that. I mean, I remember flipping through the Foo Fighters record when that first came out and being like, Dave Roll recorded everything. He did every track. Except one guitar part by Greg mm. Dooley from the Afghan Wigs. And I remember seeing that and being like, yes. Like, I was so pumped that I saw that connection. And like, I imagined kind of the story or how, how that might have happened in my mind. Mm-hmm. And, like, that kind of depth as, like, a hardcore fan to see the connections, even to see where it was recorded, it can mm-hmm. be really powerful. Even, like, George, I was watching the documentary from Revolver about your last tour for... Um, for, for Ordinary. Ordinary Corrupt?
0: Yeah, we can just call it Ordinary. It always <laughs> makes it easier.
1: <laughs> but anyway, I love I loved the fact that the Bay Area, coming back to the Bay Area for that record was like a full circle moment for y'all in the band and recording here. And, and the connection of that, I, I like those stories. I like the story that you and Nick have together, the relationship you have together, George, you are a groomsman and Nick's wedding. That's yes. amazing. That's awesome. But I like that there's a story, there's a relationship behind the artwork between you two and the music. And l- let's talk about sunbather. Let, let's just get into it because, um, like, at what point did that visually come together? And at what point did you say, and we're going to make this an official font? And was there ever a point where you were like, whoa, this is so kind of outside what people might expect that, I don't know, should we think differently? Or did that make you want to double down?
0: Well, let's see. I, I always think that Nick has a better memory. But <laughs> I'll say what, what I know of it, which is... We can get
2: both sides of the story.
0: Yeah, I originally i remember being on we were on tour with Alsace in 2012 and i had found the photography of ellen rogers who is a uk-based photographer primarily fashion but she's just incredible analog photographer and i had found these images and i contacted her and the images were kind of uh they had these sort of like they were pink but with more like earth tones and that didn't really matter to me it was just really beautiful and I remember like we couldn't get that image or it's very expensive or, or something. Or another. We've actually kept in, in contact all these years. She's great. But um, I remember that was kind of an initial idea. So this idea of like pink and stuff, these like lighter colors, I think we were, were kind of there very early on. And I don't know how many concepts we went through because I tend to like, especially at early stages, I jet around like really fast and I'm like a 180 my thought process constantly it's a problem but i remember eventually we were like let's just we should play to your strengths which was like type and for roads to judah we had gone with this kind of uh torn away you have a better word for it (laughs) we had we had taken type and and taken pieces
2: out of it oh yeah yeah that was yeah, we we sort of removed the crossbars of the letters. It was sort of keeping in metal tradition of legibility and typography and logos. You know, we were talking earlier, they stretch genre bounds of what metal is considered. So I was thinking like on an atomic level, like what does that same kind of legibility concern in metal do if you make it behave in some way that's not branching or thorns? So that's just something I've been exploring with their logos like from the get-go is like sort of pushing those limits of like is it metal
0: at its core but not necessarily in its aesthetic yes and so we tore away even more and Nick came up with this really beautifully minimal type and I remember we had hopes we love life and that was a early influence because that album is letter focused so those, those were like an info concept so the idea of like like the, the minimalism and, and, and the type focus and the color, these were all very organic ideas from conversations. And at no point was it like, you know, I think did we feel controversial about it. I think we just really wanted to make something that was beautiful. And when Nick showed me the original cover, I was like, okay, yeah, I think this is this is like so completely unexpected. As an aside, we were at the Uptown in SF and Ad Ross which is a guy Nick and I know and it was like him and, and and a couple of these guys he's a designer who, who lives in New York and it was him and a couple guys and we were all at this bar and uh, it was pretty late in the night and I was like man you gotta see this like this is our album cover check it out and I remember he, he was just like dude yes like that's your album cover like wow like this is so I think he said like clean or dope or something but this is so dope and I think Outside of anyone that was the first person I showed, I wasn't showing anyone because I wasn't supposed to, but you know, after a few drinks or whatever, and from then really being like, okay, like we might have something kind of special here. Like, I'm not the only one that thinks it
2: right. Adros is another person that is very much inside and outside our world at the same time, would you say? Yeah, like he comes from punk and hardcore, did work for the band Trash Talk forever, someone whose eyes we trust in, in synopsis. Yeah, great taste.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And then when it was unveiled to the world, I mean, I guess the reaction was polarizing, but I I think that people thought it was incredibly beautiful.
0: I don't really remember
2: so much now. I don't remember any of the immediate reaction. It seems like it like snowballed over the course of like three or four years.
0: It definitely did. By like, honestly, yeah, um, by like 2014 had it been, did become like the thing that, that it became. I think at first people were just like, yeah, this is great. I don't think people expected something terribly, quote, typical from us. And anyway, so I think for a lot of our fan base at the time, we were serving it up correctly.
2: I think at this point, we would have been like surveying it on Facebook comments, if anything. I'm trying to put myself in like a digital context of like where there would have been commentary, if there was any. I guess Facebook. Yeah, that's what we've been looking on. Yeah. Because I, th- I think the pink pissed people off, but I, I don't really remember. I mean, you guys already pissed people off, so it wasn't really like out of the norm.
0: Yeah. That was the other thing is that we weren't really coming from this place of like, it wasn't so night and day immediately. I think people had formed early opinions on us. I think if anything someday they maybe cemented those Mm -hmm. biases or or whatever, but all this to say it was not intentional. I feel like I have to clear that at least like once a year. (laughs) Yeah,
2: people think like, oh, that's so cool. It's really contrarian. It's like, it's not really. In my eyes, it fully supports the music and the concepts behind the record. And like we were talking about, sort of stretching your imagination of the metal logo and readability and all that. And I don't buy that it's purely like antagonistic towards the public.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to see its influence like years from now, because I think it kind of breaks open what's possible.
2: It's kind of done it. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been ripped for, you know, and I'm not saying it was a purely original idea by any stretch. It was like based on typography experiments in the 1920s, but I look at something and I have a project and there's a lens in which you can apply one thing to another in a sense that's tweaked and figure out like a new context. That's interesting. So like slavishly reproducing something like for like a, you know, commercial goods or a streetwear company that just goes like, here's an album cover I am going to lift onto my product. Like That's not interesting. There's no artistic context behind that. But yeah, George and I just are constantly sending (laughs) each other things that we're like, really,
1: still? Like things that you you see are kind of ripping
2: off? Like what I said, my idea was not a new idea in 2013. Right. And like, you would think that trends are so much more, like the cycles are so much quicker these days. I feel like they are exponentially quicker, but you still see it as if someone thought it was a new idea, but it was just the like the 2013 version to the 2016 version to the
0: 2017 version. Right. And we gave the public the correct version. Yeah. Which is as, as a sort of like, really kind of like an interesting experiment to see what people would do with it.
2: Yeah, like we, we almost tried to kill it ourselves by giving it to people.
0: Yeah, well, in a hope that maybe, you know, if you can make something beautiful out of this go for it yeah you
1: giving away the font you mean
0: yeah yeah because people were were kind of using like off-branded versions even for like our own posters and stuff things that were just not, not correct so we're like okay why don't we do this and like no band that i can think of has done this before it's kind of like already sort of interesting yeah like furthers the inter- the conversation about you know music and
2: art and mm-hmm merchandise and all those things
0: and yeah and what, and what are these things and even gives people an opportunity to bootleg and and what have you but i still just saw things that kind of look similar to it and then memes <laughs> we did get sent a couple of things from younger designers who were like experimenting with the font that i thought was cool that is cool they like send us emails that were like hey i use this for a flyer or like a poster
1: Let's go to New Bermuda. That's the polar opposite. It was like a sculptural drawing, a sculptural painting? It's a painting, yeah. Where did that come from? And I feel like the texture and grit of that artwork really speaks to the music of that record. It's a dark record. It's heavy. It is dirty. And I feel like that visual that comes up for me is like I can almost picture that person listening to the music and clawing and creating this animalistic painting.
2: It's funny you mentioned animalistic because a few of the references that that painter's work that I was drawn to were of animals, like much more kind of feral looking. But we had talked about, okay, sunbather was one thing and we're moving on from there. And at the beginning, I was like, okay, that last cover was graphic design. It was solely a piece of graphic design. I want zero graphic design on this next one. We need to do a complete pivot and it took some convincing to even get typography on that cover, but the main version has it removable, like on a what's called like an ob strip. It's like a kind of hugs the side of the spine. But going back to the painting, when George had originally sent me the record and talked about the themes, George was talking about like the idea of like a like a sullen portrait, someone that had lost their way or felt disassociated, dislocated, confused, that sort of thing. And I had thought of Alison Sheldick, who was the painter that I'd known for a few years at that point. And she has just this really kind of macabre style. And yeah, like the texture and the grit in the painting is literally like the paint comes off the canvas by like an inch at points, depending on the scale that she's working in. It could be several even. I had pitched that as an early idea and we explored like quite a few kind of in between until we came back around to commissioning her to do a piece for it.
1: Did she listen to the record? Like, did she make the artwork listening to the record, or did she just know the themes or have some creative direction from y'all?
2: I can't remember if she heard the record itself, but she was a fan. That was like really why she took it on. Yeah, um, she doesn't. She doesn't do a lot of commissions like that. It was actually very like I was. I was like, wow, like we got Ali to paint this cover.
0: I was so stoked. We ended up going to one of her shows not too long after, and getting to talk with her more more in depth way. She's an incredible artist and very sweet. I like talking about New Bermuda, uh, the art process. You know, a lot of people focus on Sunbather, but our relationship even still with Sunbather was kind of more in its infancy. And by the time we had gone to New Bermuda, we started working the way that we work now, which is very in-depth introducing mood boards. And I have like a list of artists and things like that. And it starts early and every piece means something. And, While there was like unique details to the packaging for Sunbather and for the artwork on Sunbather, New Bermuda was really stepped up in a lot of ways. And we worked more on that record with so many different elements than we have with anything else. So the whole process was great. And Nick is right. Uh, We wanted to make something that was kind of downtrodden. I remember I had gotten really into like the Harlem Renaissance and Harlem Renaissance art and kind of bombastic, over-the-top physical art, you know, things that looked physical, sculptural. And that was something that had been like brewing. And then there's this Polish artist, this guy, Jarek Puczyl. I probably really screwed that up because I don't know how to do that accent. And he had this painting called The Pianist which had these kind of like navy and gray and black tones and it's, it's of this like faceless person kind of hovered over a piano. And I remember that was a big reference and I was like, this is at least the color palette and this kind of mood and posture. And so it was those two things and that's what really drove it was this kind of emotional physicality that we wanted combined with this really overtly sad theme. And anyway she nailed it it was great she sent a couple and we were like oh this is so this is so wild oh yeah that was another thing is you know for
2: contacting a fine artist about a commission i didn't expect her to send me four paintings to choose from clearly she was inspired there and george has the the original at his place and i have the runner-up of mine
1: <laughs> that's awesome i was gonna ask yeah, yeah I, I,
2: if there is a component of fine art or illustration or photography and A record I work on, I I try and figure out some part of sweetening the deal by owning it if it's something that's really close to me.
1: Yeah, George, where do you have uh, where do you have the artwork? I'm looking at it right now. It's uh, it's above my bookshelf.
0: In fact, Carrie, our our guitarist, was over here a few days ago, and we we talked about it because he hadn't seen it in a while. It's it's impressive to see in person. It's very commanding. Yeah, she did a wonderful job. Is it big? 14 inches. 14. Yeah, yeah. I remember that being a
2: part of it because. Allie works on a she works on a smaller scale sometimes, but oftentimes they're like the size of a wall. So you can imagine like painting something that's eight feet wide and scaling it down to a record cover. You can't a hundred percent get the sense of scale of the brush strokes and like how dynamic her painting is. So I think for ease of the job as well as the, like George said, the physicality, scale was really important so that you can really see what those brush strokes are doing. Right, and so in the case of something that's fourteen inches with these wide strokes, you know, the paint is like coming off the edges by several inches. Even even like transporting them was pretty nerve wracking, just because I was nervous about the you know the painting sliding somewhere
0: and getting damaged on the edges in any of the process really. When I got the painting after it had been photographed and everything, and I started owning the painting, it was still wet. There were parts like if you were to Push your finger in too much it would dent in i mean it was not whoa yeah it's, it's layered on so thick i think the right.
2: interior is technically was still drying for months
0: months it, it had to take at least
1: three months that's so so sick and that's that's just to think about having to be so careful with a piece yeah. of artwork that's basically still alive and could still be so fragile in mm-hmm. that process that adds a like an extra layer of like care to the whole mm-hmm. art element of the record.
0: It was it was cool, and then that record came out anti, and we basically went to anti <laughs> and were like, "We want everything." They were bewil- <laughs> They
2: were bewildered when I when we, George and I came in and were like running through the print specs
1: of that package. You're like, we want the works on this record on the package.
0: Yeah, let's talk about it a bit because it's it is it's it's beautiful. I still think it's one of the best things we've ever made. So yeah, like
2: basically to kind of simulate this wet, crazy painted. I think the technique is called impasto, where the, the with the really chunky paint. We wanted to do what's called a sculptural emboss. So basically, there's like a plate that's carved on multiple layers and pressed into the board of the record jacket, so that when you run your fingers over it, it would feel like the brushstrokes and the pieces that are raised. So I actually had to like create a diagram of like which details are level one, which details are level two, which are level three. And someone, I think, hand-carved a piece of wax that a brass plate was cast from
0: and then stamped into the record jacket. Wow. And then we put a high gloss over it. So it's yeah. really reflected in the light. It looked essentially, it looked like the painting.
1: Right. Yeah. It was. A, it was a replica of the painting in the package, and it sounds like almost topographical map making.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. That's. A, that's. That would be probably the exact same technique.
1: Yeah. yeah. What was the record company's reaction? Were they like, "You just did sunbather. You can do whatever you want," or they were like, "Well, uh, you know, this is coming out of your." They,
0: they. No. They were. They were cool. They were. I think it was kind of like a.
1: If you want.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but they were definitely, I mean, everyone let us know our loving manager. She is always the one who is like taking my wild dreams and and making them realistic for me. So I think we probably had like a couple back and forths just to be like, look, keep your head on. Like, we'll give you this, this and this, but it wasn't like a struggle. I mean, I don't remember it being a struggle. I remember it being
2: like, we're going to do it on these couple thousand, but not all of them. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. That was more the, like, you can have it. You can have it for a little bit.
1: Are they gone now?
2: I have to
0: imagine. Oh, yeah, they've been gone. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have one. I don't think everyone in the band has one. But uh, I think also that they... I would like to think and, and do believe that, that they appreciate our ambition. Oh, definitely. I don't think it's too often that people come in with, with an idea like that. Especially with the OB strip, which we had a foil stamp. And then that was like a whole... I mean, it's a very detailed the package itself was matte and we had just like the smallest gloss lettering for the inside yeah you know, there was lots of lots of little things but all this to say it was a lot of fun and it was really wonderful having allison involved
1: what was allison's impression of the record like the the physical record once she got it like the reproduction from her painting
2: I don't remember a hundred percent but I could just like I'm having trouble making words of like, she's just a very like excited person, very enthusiastic and excited. So I'm sure she was thrilled like seeing that, like here's a band I love. I painted this. They like actually even tried to make it look and feel like my painting.
1: Right. Yeah. And then total 360 to photography for the Ordinary Record. And is that the thinking again, Nick, like let's do something we've never done before. We've never had photography on the package. Let's move into that. Or... George, were you thinking as this record was coming together, how much kind of memory played into these songs, how much kind of nostalgia or or feeling back to a time, and how photography can kind of like summon those kinds of feelings? Where did photography come into play for for the record?
0: Again, in the way that we did New Bermuda, starting early and discussing ideas thoroughly we did this with ordinary and the record was a departure from the previous three in that i wanted to focus less on my own life and more on the observations of others and the record was focused on empathy and this kind of return and, and an idea that there was a lot of beauty in very ordinary things and I think we just thought that photography could execute that in, in a nice way. I'm trying to think of how we got how Sean involved. I don't know if Sean was involved
2: in in some capacity already, but do you remember coming over and looking at Tadanori Yoku books? And we went down a, a road of kind of like exuberant
0: psychedelic illustration. We did before photography was brought That's in. right. So this is what I'm. This is what I mean about like my early beginning, like 180s that happened. I should not overlook this. This came later into play with like our color choices and stuff. Yeah, it
2: totally informed what we did and even became the their backdrop for their like tour. It did, it did, that's right. Like a year, and, year, year and a half in. Yeah, yeah. We resurrected it. I don't think you had the nostalgic angle when we first started talking. I think when we first started talking, it was like, this record's going to be brighter. Let's do something different. And then once the lyrics and everything came into play, sean's involvement with the black and white photography and like focusing on the people and the 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 beauty of the ordinary you know came
0: out you're exactly right and that is that's how all of our records are made usually riffs come before words and so yeah we probably had written the first version of what was like canary yellow and i was like okay this is like leaning into some kind of psychedelia and then yeah, and then when things got a bit more grounded in the in the lyrics and uh and I kind of realized what, what the mood would be, we married those two things by having this human street photography with these brighter like psychedelic color elements. And it worked. And so the photographer for the project is Sean Stout, whose work I love and we get along really well and Sean actually stayed with us while we were in Oakland recording the record and we got it we all got a house together and we would take trips to the city and around Oakland and and go shooting. And for the project we ordered a a scanner that we returned, you know, and just like we, we just we set up all these things in this house and so we could develop and scan nightly. And we had like rolls of film taped on lines hanging through like the living room and stuff, and and these are eventually what became uh, the album artwork. But it was cool. It was cool because we were. It was everything was extremely organic and very much in real time. And there was an energy to that, and it was it was nice.
1: George, you started to touch on this a little bit, but I am curious about the creative process and let's talk about it for the music. Is the music done? Is the music raw when you hear it and you write lyrics to it? And also is your lyrical process kind of like rough draft to final writing or does it more flow out all at once?
0: The music and, and lyrics are written separately. Often I'll write little poems or something that that I then return to and, and can reformat for the vocals. But yeah, it's it's weird. I don't necessarily think that the music and the lyrics are I, I think that they seem like they work well together just because they are working together, kind of a thing. But there isn't a whole lot of intent between the music and the lyrics necessarily. It's just at the end product that kind of informs one another. I'm never like thinking of lyrics when I'm listening to like a demo or something like that. So it all kind of happens in this like this like fragmented way. And then usually once a body of work musically is starting to come together, I'll look through the six months, year, year and a half of things I've been writing, kind of see things that I've been feeling, make connections there, and then start to repurpose for the record. So say like for what I'm working on currently, it's things I've been writing since 2018, you know, that I'll find themes in and then put them to the music that's also being created, but separately. It's not like a really big process or anything. It just kind of goes on its own. Yeah.
2: There's something gratifying about weaving a thread
0: through your own thoughts at a later point. I think so too. I think it's always half and half. You know, you always feel like when you're in the moment of something, you're like, oh, I'm really into this right now or I'm thinking about these things a lot right now. But then when you reflect on them, they're never the same as what they were initially. Say like for Ordinary, I remember even thinking as I was writing these lyrics, I was like, oh, like this is about other people. But by the time it was finished, it was like through my own lens, like things shift all the time, perspectives shift. And I think that, yeah, you kind of need, I, at least I I have trouble writing and then immediately putting it out because... Often, like my reflection is always different than what I was feeling in that moment of, of first, first having it.
1: Yeah, where are you at right now, George? Like, as you're reflecting back on the past two years, like, what what kind of headspace are you in? I'm good. I'm doing well. Yeah,
0: you know, I feel like I actually I'm at a point now that I've been more interested in things than I ever have. I have this personal renaissance, you know, within me. Like I've been absorbing tons of art and literature and and I mean, like over the past few years and getting into different things and and getting into different history and and exploring different interests. You know, it kind of took me like turning 30 to like start to be like, oh, there's like other stuff, you know, like I love music and stuff, but like music and Death Heaven specifically like has commanded my last 10 years, you know. And as I've allowed myself to not be so commanded, I've really embraced a lot. So, say for like future projects and stuff, I'm actually quite excited about everything that will inform them. I don't feel like I'm slowing down necessarily. If anything, I'm charging up.
1: That's great. What's it been like the short stop on on touring for both of you, Nick and and George? I mean, this is a, a pretty big lifestyle shift especially Def having in the past 10 years, is that tough? Or is it just more time to kind of hunker down and get work done?
0: So Nick never stops working. So Nick's just working half time now. Because when Nick's on tour, Nick works full time and is just on tour. So he's probably just feeling relief. I, I feel periods of boredom, but I know it'll be back. It, now for me is a time to focus on all the things that i can't really focus on while touring that means you know writing new music and stuff like that it, it's it's harder for me to focus you know when we're on the road road is kind of like the spoils for me you know it's a job but it's the good part i'm in like my cool at home cerebral time where i can kind of uh you know re- refocus but i don't know nick how are you feeling
2: i've felt you know lucky is one word for it but it hasn't upended my life because we weren't planning on being on the road at this time. We were in the studio recording while this all happened. And, you know, thankfully we're able to finish that out. But, you know, I was just seeing friends everywhere getting upended and, you know, nobody knowing how long it was going to last. And clearly that's doesn't seem like touring is going to be viable until well into next year. It's affecting things but with such a long lens that I'm fine being home. I'm fine, you know, getting my things done and working and being in the planning stages and yeah, just enjoying home life. I have a mixed relationship with touring because of that because I pull double duty. So, while I love performing and I I do like being on tour, it's often inconvenient. Sometimes I would even fly home on an off day just to get work done in a consolidated space instead of like on a 20-hour van drive. Yeah, because we don't tour in a very glamorous way whatsoever. So yeah, this is definitely
0: easier. Normally, he's right. Normally, we don't tour with any glamour. But last fall, we got a pinch of glamour. We got oh, a yeah. bus, and on the bus, while everyone hangs out, I mean, this guy is making like sixty logos, you know, for a client, and like mm-hmm. l- quite literally, just like hop on the bus from the venue, say hello grab a coffee and then be like, well, <laughs> see you later. Incredible dedication. He has a very good attitude about it. I would totally hate touring if I had to do that. Like when I have to do an interview on tour, you know, I'm always like, ah. and it's like, I'm just literally not doing anything. Just sitting and talking.
2: The bus with Wi-Fi and having like my own, I mean, it wasn't my own desk. It was basically just the table downstairs, but sort of like having that for myself was, Fantastic. I could do that forever.
1: So Nick, you you mentioned the new Touche More record and multi-part question here, but George, you've gotten into photography. You take photographs and I know that you're actually you're a key creative component in the new Touche More record. Like you're you're doing the photography for it?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've I've taken I've taken some photos. Uh, key component sounds nice. Uh, that, I, I appreciate that. I, I think that that's that's generous. I'd give you that. That's not your official title on the liner notes, but I'd call it key component. I'll, I'll say this. It's fun. It's a little nerve wracking, but in a great way, it is a very fun challenge to be on the other side and to be trying to execute something for someone else. Never quite literally never had this position. That's
2: kind of why I wanted to do it. I mean, for, for more reasons than that. But I love seeing friends sort of like blossom in this way. And we already have such like a close relationship with art and music. And, you know, George is like one of my confidants when we're talking about like, you know, gripes of the road or this aspect of being the band or what do you think of this demo? Or I'm unsure of this. Like we already have that relationship. So seeing his photography over the past couple of years, like growing and Totally into an aesthetic that I love and would want to sort of put on that type of pedestal. It's it was like okay, great. Like if there's going to be a photographic component of this, I'd love you know for us to kind of grow even closer in that way and like almost seeing what client work is like from the other side of it.
1: Yeah, Nick. I mean, we focused on Death Heaven in this interview, but your experience doing albums for Pink and Britney Spears and Coheed and Cambria and Hypnotic Eye for Tom Petty. I mean, it's such beautiful, wide-ranging work. I'm curious the creative approach there. Does it start in a sketchbook? Does it start with mood boards? How do you kind of conceptualize the music with the visuals when you're working with folks outside of Deaf Heaven? Maybe folks you have less of an intimate relationship and collaboration with.
2: Yeah, yeah. Most of the clients that you just mentioned there are what I'd call the ideal process, which is hearing the music, first and letting that inform your thoughts. With a lot of pop music, you don't get that chance because they're secretive about it. You don't have access to the artists. The record isn't even made yet. The record's not mastered yet. Sometimes you have to start without a title. Sometimes you're just delivered a photo shoot to work with that you had no say in. You know, An artist like Pink is super hands-on. I don't know that I get to hear her music early, but she's very much a part of like, we send ideas and mood boards and start brainstorming the photo shoots and deal with her in management. And she's like super, super, super involved, super opinionated in an awesome way because she fucking cares. And so like on that, like what I'm going to call like the high level of like pop stratosphere clients, I have a lot of respect for that because we are able to get brought in, you know, as much as they're comfortable. And also someone like Tom, who, you know, RIP superstar. But for Hypnotic Eye, we got to hear the record early. We got to hear snippets of Tom's thought process on the title track and kind of where his head was at going into making that record. And we're just given the green light to go. So in that one, we just started making art rapidly and showed him a bunch of options. I think there was like 60 or 65 and he chose one, which is also like very crazy to not have rounds and rounds and rounds of revisions.
1: Right. And the one amongst everyone at the firm, it was, it was one of yours.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so that's just like forever going to be a high point in my career. I, I just don't see how anything could top that even things that are incredibly personally close to me. He's just such like a hero for me. And then for the most part, it does start with the music, the seed of an idea, exploring different avenues that that could go down. And whether that's through sketching or collecting references, like, you know, resulting in a mood board or something like that. It's funny, it's like the closer you get to someone, the more it can be like a conversation and that kind of thing can be internal. It really just depends on like, yeah, your comfortability with the person and your access and what you think based on their personality is going to get the right result. Because there's some people I could imagine sending a 30-page mood board with annotated lyrics and ambitious concepts like wouldn't go very well. They'd just be confused. Like, wait, this is stuff that other people made. Like, you didn't make me anything. (laughs) Um, And then some people say... Holy shit! Like you did all of this for me and my lyrics and my music. Like you're treating it with this much importance. And to which I answer, you're like yes, it's like that. Not only is it fun, but it's extremely important. It's going to sort of dictate the next several years of what you're doing.
1: Right. Yeah. There's a visual visual research project that's a key component in what you're doing. Definitely.
2: And that that comes with a an ample timeline. And that comes with my own enthusiasm towards a project. And I try and only take on projects that I have that sort of like enthusiasm for. I wouldn't want to pour all that energy into something I didn't care about. And I don't know that the result would be quite as good. I'd have to be like grasping at straws a little bit. But that's part of the fun is like that, that initial sprint, that initial creative sprint. Like you might do a lot of things that don't end up on the cover, but they oftentimes inform a lot
1: down the road. Can we talk about that approach in, in relation to stage four, the Touche record, the yeah. discovery, the, the the personal history that went along there? I know the album is, you know, it's fourth record, but it's stage four a reference to cancer and Jeremy's mother passing. So there's like just a lot of emotional depth and heartache that that went in that and personal family history. How personal was that experience of researching and developing that artwork? And then eventually what came together in the packaging? How do you feel in as does Jeremy kind of connect with that as a physical monument to, to the music and his mom?
2: As heavy as it is for him, and you know, having a, a monolithic reminder of what's going on, you know, I, d- I do think it affects him. I hope that it did, you know, his mom justice, just like that whole sort of like homage to her. But that was another example of being so close to the project, probably closer than anybody could be, who is like one of my best friends, you know, going through this and reeling from it. So. When she was sick and when we were writing, I think we all sort of unspokenly knew that that was what the record was going to be about, such like a heavy moment. And towards the beginning of it, what would become, I think, like a year, maybe longer writing process, Jeremy, after his mom passed, was tasked with having to move out of the house he grew up in, having to pack it all up and leave. And at the time, we were working really closely with another colleague of mine, Ryan Aylesworth, who's a photographer. And I was looking at a lot of collaged art and because I always know there's going to be some artistic output from my band, I'm always just collecting snippets of things that catch my eye. Not for anything really, but sort of like reference later. And I was looking at a lot of collage and I was thinking like, before Jeremy moves, we should document the house as is and after the moving process and figure out what to do with that. Obviously, extremely time-sensitive as well as sensitive on a personal and emotional level. But, you know, I think we have that sort of closeness to where me bringing up an idea like that mm-hmm. wasn't, like, hugely insulting. And so we did it. And I found a collage artist in the UK that makes these beautiful tiled arrangements. Or that was sort of a motif he was exploring. And I wrote to him and just sort of told him my idea for this, that we would sort of take these pre- and post-photos and some of them would be the before and after collaged into one image. And some would be sort of reorganized, like you'd see the before on the left, the after on the right. And there were just these, just sort of these pieces rearranged, sort of like in a metaphorical sense, like compartmentalizing grief through that process of kind of unboxing literally with, with the square tiles. So yeah, that one was, I mean, I think we started the artwork on that two full years before the record came out. And it was just all in sort of like slow processes of once the house was documented
1: till the end. Yeah, I love that record, Nick. It's uh, it's so powerful. Thank you.
2: I just sort of figured with Jeremy's lyrics, that they're so soul-bearing and they're not afraid to be so blunt and honest and real, that the visual component of that has to be just like like George said. It's just like a you know your heart drops. Yeah. So we were talking about important projects. That's going to be one I'll never. You know, forget just for those reasons.
1: Yeah. I've absolutely loved talking to you both. But honestly, I'm such a big fan of both of your music, both of you just as creative people and collaborators. It's really just been like a joy to get a glimpse behind the curtain at the collaboration you two and the relationship you have together and how that's coming together in the music and the arts. This has just been so, so awesome. And, you know, before we wrap, I just want to ask, like, Is there anything else you wanted to just kind of say about collaborating together, about what's coming up next for both bands or just how you're thinking about the world in the context of 2020, which is tough and, and pretty raw? Yeah,
0: I think that there's much to be said. And I think it is of utmost importance that people live in the moment and are able to take a lot of what this year is, is giving evaluate yourself. I think that a lot of that self-evaluation is going to go into future projects spurred by what you're saying today and on a less esoteric note working with Nick, I have relationships in my life, continuous ones, continuous creative relationships that I find are important or that are just essential to my life. Nick is one of those people. And I think that for me, these relationships are so important because I do like seeing a path. I do like tracing a line. And I like seeing how People can kind of grow along that line, and it's been just a wonderful experience to have that with someone. Some people work with different artists each record or or each you know project, and we do too. And you know, we we, we branch out here and there. But when it comes to the big things, the important things, the cerebral things, this is the person I work with. It's a wonderful thing to have. Really,
1: agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much for giving me a look and listeners a look at what this looks like, it's such a special creative collaboration. And, you know, obviously I would love a sneak peek at what's coming next, but I know that, uh, you know, some things have to stay under wraps until they're ready to, to be shared. But the next Touche record, the next Deaf Heaven record, certainly going to be viewing and listening to those uh, through the lens of this conversation. And I hope the listeners get a chance to do that too. So thank you so much. Thank you you too. It's
2: an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks so much for listening. A big thanks to George and Nick for joining the show. It was such a pleasure to meet you both and glimpse into your shared creative worlds together. Shout out to Josh Roth who helped connect us all and make this episode happen. My big takeaway from this episode is the amount of care and consideration that both of these incredible creative forces bring to their own work and to their work together. Hearing about the inventiveness behind some of these albums, both in the musical adventurousness and the visual art, was truly inspiring. I love how there is so much discovery work that happens, flipping through art books together, mood boards, and the eagerness to experiment in all their art from music, design, photography, and beyond. I think you can hear that creative urgency in Deaf Heaven's music and in the way that they work with Nick to propel a visual language around their music into the world. This was such a great conversation to kickstart this series with. I hope you'll subscribe and share this podcast with a friend. And if you like what you heard, please drop us a review or five stars on Apple Podcasts. It would mean so much. Making Ways is created, hosted, and illustrated by me, Rob Goodman, audio engineered by Brian Paik at Pacific Audio. You can learn more about the show at makingwayspodcast.com. Find us on Instagram at making.ways. And if you have a project that brings together music and art, I'd love to hear from you. Be well and see you soon. Thanks again for listening. Here's Sunbather by Deaf Heaven from the album of that same name to close out the episode.